Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise and leaving them. He went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for this day and we thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that you would teach us through it. Lord, that we would hear what you have for us. Lord, that we would apply it. Uh, Lord, that we would love you with our lives. Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. As Pastor Mark said, uh, we're coming to a very familiar passage today. And one of the things that's difficult sometimes is to remember to slow down and hear what Christ is teaching us in a familiar passage. And so that's my prayer for us today is that we can slow down and we can look at what Jesus is teaching us as he goes to the temple It started last week as we talked about Jesus coming into Jerusalem, into the holy city, humble and mounted on a donkey, that the long-awaited Messiah had finally come, and the crowds cried out. It's like they got it. They're crying out, Hosanna, God save us. Here's the son of David, the one that we've been waiting for. But as Pastor Mark pointed out last week, there was a tension between the expectations of what the people were expecting from their Messiah and Jesus' mission, what he had come to do. See, the people wanted political salvation, uh, but Jesus had come to give them something far better, spiritual salvation. And so the tension that we saw dramatically last week, uh, we're going to see dramatically again this week. As Matthew clumps the the coming into town on the donkey with the going to the temple, that they go back to back. Now in Mark's gospel, we see that there's actually a day in between that Jesus came into town and that he went into the temple and the temple was was dark and it was quiet and he looked around and then he left and then he came back. Uh, But Matthew is pointing something really specific out to us for us to see that the Messiah's rightful place when he comes into town is to go to the temple. See, Jesus had entered town and he went where he belonged. He goes to the temple and he realizes that that things aren't right. That things aren't going the way that they're supposed to go. He came to bring peace, but he can't sit back. Well, he sees all these atrocities that are happening here in town. But see, his greatest concern wasn't the foreign invaders, but it was the invaders and the enemy within their own midst. It wasn't a military stronghold that he goes to, but this spiritual stronghold of the temple. And, and, and I love how Matthew doesn't let us miss that. 
Uh, if you look at our passage, he says four times where Jesus is. Four times he uses the phrase, in the temple, which is somewhat unique because up to this point in the book of Matthew, he hasn't really talked about the temple much at all. In fact, you can only find the temple three other times in the first 20 chapters of Matthew, that there's a big shift that's happening here as Jesus goes to the temple. And we'll see this as he goes into Holy Week and as he teaches in the temple and he teaches about the temple. But four times in our passage, Matthew points out that Jesus is in the temple. You you see it at the beginning of verse 12. Let me flip there real quick. I lost my bookmark. But in in the beginning of verse 12, uh, it says that Jesus is in the temple and that he entered into the temple and he drove out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And then if you go down a couple verses in verse 14, even though we don't see any movement of Jesus, we hear that the blind and the lame came to him. And where did they come? They Well, they came into the temple. And then down another verse from there, uh, we hear these children singing. And where are they? Well, if you're tracking with me, if you're paying attention, you recognize, well, they're in the temple. Like they're coming to the temple. And so four times, Matthew says that they're in the temple. And that doesn't even include in verse 13, where Jesus says that my house shall be a house of prayer. And so really the focus that Matthew is giving us is this temple. And so we ask the question, why? Why is Matthew so focused on keeping us in the temple? That everything that Jesus does, everything that he says, everything that he's teaching is pointing to this this temple. What's so important about it? And we recognize that we have to get into the, the mindset of Matthew and the mindset of his original Jewish audience. That the temple was this this place, it was a symbol of God meeting with his people. That the original temple that Solomon had built was actually fashioned after the tabernacle in the wilderness, but, but even that was fashioned after the Garden of Eden. This place where God had placed Adam and Eve into the garden to work it and to keep it. But, but even more than that, it was a place to have communion with God and fellowship with God as God walked through in the cool of the day and spoke with them. That God made people to be in fellowship with Him and with community with Him. But that the Holy God wasn't able to keep them in the garden after their sin. That their sin exiled them. Their sin put them out of the garden and out of this communion with God. And yet God is unrelenting. He doesn't allow that to be the final word, but promises the Messiah. And then he comes back in, in, in the tabernacle. He gives Moses instructions for this tent in the wilderness, a place that God will meet with his people, that God will come and he will be with them. And then King David later sees this. They're in the promised land and they've established the kingdom. And, and he, he asks the question like, why is it that I live in a house? I live in this permanent palace, this structure, and the almighty God of the universe who has been so faithful to us still lives in a tent. Why does he dwell in a tent still? And so David comes up with this idea that he's going to build this house for the Lord. And in a very beautiful turn of phrase, God says, no, 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 you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you one. And then Solomon, his son, actually builds the house for the Lord. He builds the temple of the Lord. And it was this moment of great rejoicing and the glory of God was going to come and be in the midst of his people in this permanent spot, in this temple of the Lord. 
And you can hear some of the joy and the excitement in 1 Kings 8, where Solomon speaks of the temple. And he says, I have indeed built you, O Lord, an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. And he adds later on, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heavens, the highest heaven can't contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord, my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer of your servant who prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place which you have said, my name shall be there forever. And so the temple is, is this focal point, the center of the Jewish religious mind. It's the place that they, they cast their prayer towards. They cast their prayers towards the temple, to the holy throne upon the earth of God. That even though God, who is infinite, that is beyond the universe, that even the, the farthest stretches of the universe can't contain Him, has put His stamp on His people. And He has put His home in their midst. And He has said, I will be there. And My name will be there. He has blessed them. You can hear about this, this reverence and joy and, and the excitement of the people of Israel as they think about the temple, uh, even reflected in words of some of the songs that we sing. Um, in some of the psalmists say things like, One thing have I asked, O Lord, that I would seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of my days, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Maybe... How lovely is the dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. For one day is better in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. But if we continue with this temple theme, we recognize that it, it didn't last, did it? That in the exile, the Babylonians came and they conquered the people of Israel and they drove them out of the land and they stole from God's temple and they tore it to the ground. And it's this picture of God's wrath and God's judgment on His people for their unfaithfulness. That they've not been faithful to God. And yet, God is a God who is still faithful to His people. And so even as we went through Zechariah, we recognized that the Israelites came back to town and what they do, they, they built a wall and they rebuilt the temple, that they started putting it back together. There was this open understanding. You can see it in the Bible and you can see it even as we talked about the Maccabees last week in church, that like if you want to mess with the Jewish people, if you want to really, really tick them off, you mess with the temple. You mess with the temple of the one true Lord. It's, they celebrate Hanukkah as this day that they've, they've rescued the temple and rededicated it to the Lord, cleansing it of this idolatrous practice. And so when Jesus comes into the temple on, on this day, there's, there's a lot in mind. There's a lot going on. That the, the temple is an important place that as God had met with the Old Testament people of God, He's meeting with His people today as well. And the Messiah is, is coming into his temple. And what does he find? He finds a marketplace. He finds noise. He finds a mess. It's not what he was expecting. It, well, it was, but it's not what he should have found. See, when Matthew talks about 
the temple, it's helpful for us to, to keep in mind, too, that Matthew is actually talking about a broader area than just the building itself. That you can think about it maybe like concentric circles, that there's a bullseye in the middle, and the temple is in the middle, and then moving out from the temple are these other areas. Uh, but the temple is this, this building that God has created, that, that the people have put together, and there's two big rooms. Well, there's one big room, and then there's a smaller room, the holy place where the priests can go in and they can offer incense and do daily ritual. And then there's the most holy place, the holy of holies, where only the great high priest can go and only once a year. And then if you you spread out from the temple, there's a courtyard and it's a court of the priests where the priests can go and they can offer sacrifices and do their rituals. And then outside of that, there's a place where the Jewish men can meet and pray and meditate. And then outside of that, there's a place for the Israelite women. The pure, purified, clean women can come and pray and worship. And then outside of that is another court, and it's for the Gentiles. It's called the court of the Gentiles. And this is the place for them to worship and for them to meet with the Lord. And this is the place where Jesus encounters the problem. See, rather than being a place of meditation and prayer, Jesus finds people selling animals and exchanging currency. And we can think about the noise that would be there, um, the yelling and the bartering taking place here. I mean, you could think of maybe an aggressive open-air marketplace, like a bazaar where people are, are selling their animals, they're selling all of this stuff, and everything there is loud and noisy and it's competing for your attention. And what a way to enter worship. What a way to come before the Lord, a place for prayer. Well, we could talk about the inappropriate practices and the way that the sellers took advantage of the pilgrims and the money changers ripped off the people that were approaching to worship. Jesus' righteous indignation flows more from where the activity is happening than from what the activity is in and of itself. See, what was going on there was they were selling selling things of religious importance. That they're, they're selling doves. They're selling animals. These, these sacrifices that people would bring to the Lord as a, as a piece of worship. This is how they're worshiping the Lord. The money changers are exchanging. They're converting currency. And so we have these people from all over the known world coming to Jerusalem. Uh, you hear just a snapshot like in Acts about all the places that these people are coming from and all the languages that they're speaking. And they have their own money. But when they come to Jerusalem, they need temple money. They need temple currency. And so they need to exchange their money. And so the things that were happening in the temple that Jesus walked up on weren't bad in and of themselves. They needed to be done. People needed to convert their money. People needed animals for worship. But there's still a problem. It's where it's happening that gave zeal to Jesus, leading him to flip tables and overturn chairs and drive people out of town. See, we see when we look at verse 13, What's really on Jesus's mind here is this quote. He says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And this is taken from Isaiah 56. 
It's a beautiful passage in Isaiah as he's he's going over the the rule of the Messiah and how things are are going to be different and things are going to change. And this is a very specific section in this chapter about Jesus blessing the foreigners, the people that weren't considered his people and bringing them in. And I'm just going to give you a little section that we find here in Isaiah 56. He says, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenants, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples." The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Reminds us of God's original purpose in coming to Abraham, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. And his temple reflects this reality that the nations belong. See, how beautiful is that? So often we look at like the exclusivity and say like the Gentiles could only be in this area and the women could be here and the men could be here. And we think of that in negative terms, that that in our minds, sometimes boundaries cause us to ask questions like, how is that fair? Why are people excluded? Why can't the Gentiles go in with the Jews a little bit farther? And yet, can't we marvel at God in his amazing grace? That he takes the lowest of the lows in society. The outcasts, as Isaiah calls them, and he gave them a place. That when they were treated like nobodies, God said, you belong here in my house with my people. Gave them a temple, a house of prayer. And God chose to accept them, to love them, to open the door to them. And what a glorious picture of a God who loves and gathers outcasts. People that that the rest of the world says, you don't belong. And he's going to continue to gather outcasts and do it in greater and greater ways. And Jesus, with these promises to the foreigners on his heart, enters into the chaos that's set up in the temple, this court of the Gentiles by the Jewish leaders. And he's furious. They have an utter disregard for the worship of God's people. And so he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, my Bible makes it clear that the first part, this house of prayer comes from Isaiah 56, 7. Um, But it doesn't show me that it's uh, the second part. The den of robbers is actually a quote taken from Jeremiah 7.11. Your Bible may have that. It may not. But you may want to just write that down. uh, That this allusion to den of robbers comes from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. And if you know anything about Jeremiah, he was a prophet of judgment to the people of Israel during the first temple that Israel had been conquered. The the northern ten tribes had been taken out of the land by the Assyrians. And and Judah and the the bottom two tribes, the southern two tribes, remained. They were there. And they, they were still here. And yet they didn't change their ways. That there's this rampant idolatry that's going on. And so God sends Jeremiah as a prophet to speak a message of judgment to the people. 
Uh, and let's just let's hear what he says here in Jeremiah 7, this famous um, sermon that he preaches at the temple. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner and the fatherless or the widow or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever." Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called my name, and say, we are delivered only to go on with all of these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Until God called Jeremiah, the prophet, to stand at the gate of the temple, the outside edge of the temple. He called people to change their ways. See, They were treating God's temple like a get-out-of-jail-free card. The thing that made them right with God. An excuse to live however they wanted as long as they did what they were supposed to in worship. God had called them to love the same things He loved, such as justice and truth and the worship of the one true God. He called them to hate the things that God hates, like idolatry and murder and the oppression of the orphan and the widow and the travelers within their gates. And yet, how did these people treat God? He says that they break all of His commandments. That they actively steal that they actively murder and commit adultery and lie and pursue idolatry. And then they have the audacity to walk into God's temple, the place that He has given His people, that meeting place with God, and say, we are delivered. It's all good. There's no change in their lives. There's no commitment in living for God. Instead, they treat God like a good luck charm or a free ticket to forgiveness or maybe as a weak deity. That they'd only need to come to Him every so often and bring Him the gifts that He wants or maybe the sacrifices that He's called for and just assume that God is pleased with this. And God's answer to these people is, how dare you treat me this way? How dare you treat my house like a den of robbers? Do you think that I'm blind? Do you think that I can't see what you're doing? And so Jesus walking into the temple, has has the promises to the foreigners on his mind. And then he sees this reenactment taking place of Jeremiah 7. And he snapped. Flipped tables over. He knocked over chairs. He made a giant mess. You can almost hear the money rolling on the ground. You can almost hear the animals braying and mooing and running away and the doves flying away in this scene of chaos here. 
as zeal for his father's house consumed him. See, the great priest, Jesus, had come to his temple. And he had the authority to make things right. The kingdom of peace would come, but not before conflict. The house of prayer would be reestablished, but not before clearing the den first. But even as we see Jesus driving one whole group out, we see another whole group, actually a couple groups, being brought in, don't we? So who belongs in the kingdom? Who belongs in the temple? Who belongs meeting with God? Well, in verse 14, it's the broken. It's the blind and the lame that came to him in the temple and and he healed them. That he showed his messianic authority to heal. That Jesus loves and cares for those who are broken. For those in the eyes of the world don't have a place. And who else belongs in his kingdom besides the broken? Uh, it's the children, right? This theme that keeps coming up over and over for Matthew is the children. It's the humble that, that receive the kingdom of God. To them belongs the kingdom of God. And they're crying out in verse 15, Hosanna to the son of David. So then when the, the priests and the, the scribes, they come to Jesus and they say, can't you hear what they're saying? Can't you hear? And he says, yes, of course. And then he lays before them Psalm 8 and reminds them that this is the way that God has always planned it, that his kingdom is upside down, that though the smallest and the least significant and the most dependent members of society, it's actually through them that God would silence his foes and still his enemies. Here were the great ones in the kingdom. It was the blind and the lame the broken and the humble, the young and the seemingly insignificant children. And they're the ones that come to Jesus in worship and are fully embraced. And so Jesus shows us His authority as the Messiah and as the priest to come in and cleanse His temple and establish God-honoring worship here. God cares deeply about worship. He's passionate about how and why His people do it. It's not just rituals, but it's the participation of the whole person as we come into worship, as God calls His people to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. It's not just about cleaning up on Sunday mornings and putting on a nice shirt, following along in the order of worship. It's not what it's all about. Worship is so much more. See, Jesus comes to us and He cleanses us of self-righteousness, showing us where our hope lies and where we trust in ourselves instead of Him. And He reminds us that we're broken, that we need Him. See, worship is about coming before the God of the universe and understanding that we're the outcasts in Isaiah's prophecy. That we are crippled by our own inability, but that we're one of his children, deeply and dearly loved by him, not because of what we do, but because we needed it and because he chose to give it graciously to us. See, when the humble, broken nobodies had nobody to speak for them, the king of peace couldn't stay silent. He stood up for them 
And He gave them a place to worship, a place to come in spirit and in truth. And that's what our Savior does for us today as well. Later in the New Testament, we learn that we're, we're living stones being built into a spiritual temple. That God's people worship together corporately each Lord's Day. That He calls us into His presence and He, he feeds us and then He sends us out each week to live for His honor and for His glory. He cares about how we present ourselves here. He cares deeply about the worship that takes place here. And he cares deeply, too, about the worship or, or the, the showing God's honor that we do day in and day out during our weeks as we live before his face, as he goes with us before this watching world. So if you feel weak and broken, unworthy, then you get it. Jesus didn't come to heal the healthy, but the sick. He didn't come to liberate those who are already free but the captives. So as we reflect on Jesus cleansing the temple, this really familiar passage, may we remember that Jesus cares for his people deeply, that he leads us into worship, and that Jesus himself fought the greatest battle that this world has ever known. And he won the great victory on our behalf, giving us outcasts, outcasts, Ask access to the Father, the throne of grace, the holy places, a house of prayer through His precious blood. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.